I don't really know how to start shows. Come on now, don't start, don't start liking me now. So yeah, I'm funny compared to, you know, well, you'll see later. I stand for mayhem! I know a lot of fucking idiots. I think a lot of shit is mean-spirited just because it goes against what they believe. But the relief of comedy is it takes things that aren't funny and it allows us to laugh about them for an hour. We got a purple suit to buy and a gigantic coffin. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Why You Laughing, a history of comedy podcast with me, your host, Blind Mike. And today I am pleased to introduce to you the legendary Robin Williams. Yes, that's right. Uh, finally, I feel like we haven't done... Uh, I guess we did Bob Newhart a few weeks ago. So we're getting back into the... Uh, you know, sort of biography of legends today. And it should be an interesting discussion because I don't know how I feel about Robin Williams' stand-up career. And I think the influence that he left behind is very weird. He's got a weird legacy and he was a very interesting guy. So uh, we will get into all of that. And if you'd like these a little early, if you're saying, boy, Mike, I would have loved to hear about Robin Williams last Thursday instead of this one, then you should go to blindmike.net because you can check out the Patreon there. That's where you get Why You Laughing episodes a week early. Like I mentioned, um, starting in the new year, we will start doing uh, bonus episodes and mini episodes and all kinds of different stuff. So you want to make sure you subscribe to the Patreon. But if you're not convinced yet, if you're not a full-fledged gearhead, uh, then you can also find links to Apple, Spotify, YouTube, support the show for free that way by subscribing and doing all the stuff that every podcast wants you to do because it helps the algorithm, supposedly. And all of that can be done at blindmike.net. So make sure you do it. Um, Craig, Robin Williams fan, yay or nay? Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like I'm supposed to be, so I always say yes. <laughs> I feel like that's that's kind of the legacy he had, and I feel like the sentence I'm about to say is what everyone says about Robin Williams, and that is that uh, loved his acting work, not a fan as a comedian. <laughs> you hear that all the time, and yet... He had this tremendous influence and impact in the world of comedy, it seems like. And unlike um, when we talked about Bob Saget, you may remember in the Bob Saget episode, I said, um, and this was somewhat similar with Louis Anderson, but I feel like it, it rings more true with Saget, that Bob Saget's an extremely famous guy, you know, recognizable pretty much anywhere he goes. But you'd be hard pressed to find someone who says, I'm just a fan of Bob Saget's stand up. You know, oh, was he on a TV show? I didn't even know that. So I believe Robin Williams is the same way, where I don't know anyone that's ever said, like, oh, yeah, I I'm, I'm sorry. I take that back. Um, I do hear people say, I really love his stand up. I don't think it's the average comedy fan. It's just this weird, weird world of people that aren't you know, diehard stand-up fans necessarily, but really enjoyed Robin Williams. I do think that world exists somewhere, you know? So if I go, I don't ever seek out his comedy, but once in a while you come across it. And when I watch it, I laugh. I think it's funny. And his delivery is second to none, I think. Yeah, he's a very, he's a very interesting guy and certainly has a ton of energy. And I just think what's different about him versus, say, Richard Pryor or Chris Rock or Carlin or whoever. I think those guys that I just mentioned were stand-ups first, where I do believe Robin Williams is a performer. And if stand-up didn't work out for him, he would have found a different venue. You know, I mean, obviously, I think he's probably much more known as an actor. Um, 
Definitely. I think I think the reason he's known as a stand-up is because it came such a part of him doing award shows and uh, those comic relief benefits and things like that, where, uh, I th- you know what, that's not even true. This is where it's hard to quantify what his career was because he had monster specials as well. Mm-hmm. Like his specials did uh, extremely well. So I got it. I, I know what we can say. He was really successful in the world of comedy. Insanely successful, like unbelievably <laughs> successful. More than more successful than I mean, there's only maybe ten guys you could list that were as successful as Robin Williams. Um, so we'll get into all of it. But uh we will start by just kind of noting that his childhood was uh very privileged, but very bizarre. He was uh he grew up like a well-to-do kid. I think his grandfather was a Mississippi senator. His mother was, um, uh, you know, came from money. Uh, His father had a a very good job. He was pretty much raised by his nanny. So he was kind of a privileged child, but uh, that didn't come without its, you know, weirdness, which kind of plagued Robin throughout his life. He always had this, you know, darkness that people didn't necessarily know about to it. And, you know, the first sign of that, or the first, uh, you know, note of that, was that Robin grew up an only child, but he had two half-brothers. Each of his parents had other children that Robin didn't know about, didn't know existed. Um, I believe he was introduced to one when he was like eight years old, but it was just a stranger that Robin was meeting. I don't think they said, like, this is your brother. And the other one, I believe he was introduced to when he was like 12, I think he said. So a very very bizarre family life the one the mother's uh son was raised by the grandparents and the father just had a first family that i guess he didn't really acknowledge which is very bizarre (laughs) what a life that must be fun It, it seems more like the further back we go the more common that stuff is like my favorite is still the jackie gleason story I mean, it's very sad if you dissect it, but just the idea that Gleason's father cut himself out of all the family photos. Yeah. That's so that no one would remember him. The further back you go, the more stories you're going to have like that, I think. But it is still very weird. Um, and I, you know, I watched clips of Robin talking about it in interviews and he mm-hmm. just kind of joked about it, which I think that became a trend in his life, you know, kind of the epitome of the sad clown. Uh, was Robin Williams. And we sort of said that about Rodney Dangerfield, where Rodney kind of was a very depressed, uh, you know, lived a very sad life and was a depressed guy, but kind of hid behind this Rodney Dangerfield character. But at least with Rodney's jokes, they were all about him being ugly or dumb or, you know, getting no respect, as it were. With Robin, he didn't have that. He didn't have this character that you were like, oh, deep down, I bet this guy is really dark and uh, really sad, but I think he did have that. And he hid behind um, just his, the, the amazing energy that he had to kind of fool all of us. He, uh, I mean, we were talking uh, about like his success and stuff. When you're the genie in a gigantic Disney movie, you kind of have no choice, but to be successful. Even look at Gilbert when he was in the same movie. Oh, well he, I mean, we, yeah, we'll get into it now because you mentioned it. Um, Disney wanted him bad. That role was written for him, the genie in Aladdin. Mm-hmm. And uh, they threw all kinds of money at him. He turned it down, turned it down, didn't want to do it. And then finally he said, you know what? I'll do it for scale. He said he'd do it for $75,000. So 
So the one thing you can't do is, you know, make money off of my voice. I don't want genie toys and all of this shit that are centered around, you know, me, basically, my voice and all the lines that he improved, essentially, I think almost all the genie's lines were basically just from the mind of Robin Williams. And so he didn't want Disney profiting off that. He says, that's not why I'm doing it. I want to be a part of, you know, this giant thing that's going to live on with kids and, and, you know, impact their childhoods. And he just wanted to be part of that. So he accepted 75 grand when at the time, I think they said his scale was eight million or his rate was $8 million a film. Jesus. So, so he took a significant pay cut. And then of course, Disney just sold a bunch of shit with his voice. They had his voice in commercials and shit like that. And Robin was like, what are you, you fucked me here. What are you doing? <laughs> I feel like if he get, he didn't get that. He must not have gotten that in writing. Um, I don't know if he got it in writing, but I do know that Disney quickly like pulled the commercials and sent him a big apology. I think they gave him a Picasso painting that was worth a million dollars or something like that. Holy fuck. Yeah. So they did their best to mend the fence, but they tried to pull a fast one on the old bastard. <laughs> they should have just given him. If I was them, I would have been like, sure, done what you did, and then just give him the eight million bucks because you're going to make way more than that. Yeah, please. Yeah, please. No, no, no. Accept our money because <laughs> we would like to make a lot more money off these toys. Yeah. Uh, but hey, we're jumping ahead of ourselves. There was a lot of uh, life that Robin lived long before he was the genie in Aladdin. In fact, I dare say most of his life was lived, really lived. Uh, before the, he was the genie in Aladdin, because those were some of the wildest years. Um, and like and again, when I talked about, like, you know, kind of growing up privileged, um, he went to Juilliard. Uh, you know, he was a, a kind of a classically trained actor. And then he moved to uh, San Francisco, which was kind of the hub, I guess the West Coast hub, not counting L.A., obviously. Um, where like the East coast, if not counting New York, it was essentially Boston. That's where you hear a lot of, uh, a lot of famous comics come from Boston. I would say Chicago is probably next on that list, but right after that is San Francisco. Um, a lot of names kind of came up in the San Francisco comedy scene and Robin Williams was probably the biggest among them. And then, uh, not long after that, he moved to LA to work at the comedy store and all this kind of stuff. And it's interesting. I mentioned uh, Bob Newhart earlier, uh, who was a kind of a character that you wouldn't expect to credit Richard Pryor as like, you know, necessarily a guy, an influence or a guy he respected a lot just because they're such different personalities. Um, Robin Williams, same thing. said he loved Richard Pryor and Pryor gave him his first shot on the Richard Pryor show. Robin Williams was on there. Um, there's clips. Uh, I think it's from like the 10th anniversary of the comedy store of prior bringing Robin Williams on stage. There's uh like, they seemed fairly close and Robin would go and visit him. Uh, I think towards the end of prior's life. So those aren't two that you would necessarily see um, uh, that you would, you would think of together. But I think when we tell you a little more about Robin's lifestyle, it might make a little more sense. Uh, you want this, um, this first clip? Um, yeah. So, I say that all to say we're getting right into the Mork and Mindy stuff, right? Yep. So this was very early. Um, and, you know, people our age might not even know that Robin Williams started on TV. Um, but this is the thing he was uh, most known for for a lot of years. 
and even said that um, after he won the Oscar for Goodwill Hunting, I assume people know enough about Robin Williams that I'm not spoiling these facts. I'm like, guys, hold on. He did win an Oscar. I don't mean to blow it, but <laughs> um, when he won uh, the Oscar for Goodwill Hunting, he said that uh, that high lasted about a week before he got, you know, someone recognized him on the street and said, hey, Mork. <laughs> so he got that like throughout his entire life, at least according to him. Um, so this is uh, kind of how he got uh, Mork and Mindy, the spinoff of Happy Days. I had this audition for ostensibly an alien on Happy Days. And the reason that show was being done, people are an alien on Happy Days? No se, say, not that kind of alien. But the idea that it was this, <laughs> that Gary Marshall's son had seen Star Wars and he thought, can we have an alien on Happy Days? That would have been a great, I could have, I would have liked to have been there when Gary went, I don't know. There's the 60s, there was no abduction, alien abductions, and we're definitely not doing any rectal probes. But the idea of an alien on Happy Days came from that. And then they started auditioning pretty much every stand-up comic they could find to come in and play this alien. And uh, my the day I went in for my audition, Richard Lewis, who's a great Jewish comic, is coming out going, I don't speak Norwegian. And I went, what does that mean? And then I went in and basically just started talking in the weird kind of helium voice and sat on my head and, you know, just started off just playing. And then just because I went, what have you got to lose? And they went, Yes, I went serious. And so I got the gig. I cannot begin to tell you how much I wish that Richard Lewis was cast as Mork. (laughs) (laughs) Would that not be the greatest thing ever? Just a depressed, miserable alien. (laughs) That would be so funny. (laughs) Richard Lewis, we'll we'll have to do a Richard Lewis episode at some point, too, because... He's an interesting guy. Like, I just think of him as maybe the funniest, certainly top two or three uh, funniest kind of side characters on Curb Your Enthusiasm. But, like, people refer to him as a, a killer in the 80s, and he was, like, a big a big deal back then. Um, so those are the kind of people that were auditioning. And for those of you that don't know, uh, the phrase jump the shark comes from the sitcom happy days uh when they did an episode where fonzie arthur fonzarelli literally jumps over a shark in the ocean (laughs) and that's where that term comes from so i'm assuming i don't know i I guess i I did i should have looked into this i'm assuming mork came after that i have a feeling that wasn't season one where they got to the alien dropping by the happy days set (laughs) (laughs) hand in hand yeah so uh, for whatever reason, that worked, and it was such a big hit on um, uh, on Happy Days that it spun off into its own show. And uh, I think, at least in this interview that I watched, Robin Williams said sixty mil- upwards of 60 million people were watching Mork and Mindy at one time. Um, so it became you know a massive hit, and obviously those numbers, that's 1970s numbers, which is a lot different than the way people watch TV now, uh, but still very very big and what's the next clip we're getting into about mork and mindy here here um this is pilot taping okay perfect let's hear about that they they put together the standard tv show and the the weird thing is the first taping of our first show we come out and 
they, they introduce us, and we notice the audience is laughing at pretty much everything. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. <laughs> all of a sudden, someone, they kind of went, they, they looked out, and we went, it turned out the, and almost, most, almost the entire audience was mentally handicapped, mentally challenged. And then they, they have to, and then they finally, after 10 minutes, went, I think we're going to have to take a break, ladies. Bye, take a break. And they had to go get another audience. That would have been the greatest laugh track, I think, in the history of television. <laughs> hello, hello. That, I think, would have been, if they had done that, I think that would have changed television by probably 10, 15 years already. But. <laughs> I like that he says it would revolutionize television. The, the idea that they would put a call out. Any uh, mentally challenged people, if you could come watch this show, <laughs> I like, they'd really hoot and holler for us. I like the idea that the laugh track would be so big. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how that happened by accident. How did they accidentally get a room full of exclusively many handicapped, mentally handicapped people? Uh, that's a great question. We should we should deep dive into that. We have to, we'll have to do an episode on that. How did Mork and Mindy pilot? <laughs> yeah, put that in the category of um, Shekla. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we should. Yeah, let's do an episode about that now. Exactly. Um, so the uh, uh, like I said, Mork and Mindy extremely successful. Um, Robin did talk about how. They jumped the shark as well. It took them, I think, a lot shorter time uh, as Mork and Mindy was only on for about four years. But he talked about how they started to, it was in the same lineup as Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley on Thursday nights. And then they, you know, kind of tried to expand and dominate a couple different nights of television. Uh, This is ABC, by the way. And um, so they moved Mork and Mindy to a different night. And they would also try things... Like he said, there was an episode where Mork is with like uh, Playboy models or something like that. There's an episode where Mork tries to be a Denver Broncos cheerleader. Like they tried to make things more sexual. And he said that's where things really got to get ridiculous. It just wasn't the same show anymore. But in his own right, uh, Robin would also try and get things past the censors, and I thought that was uh, pretty funny. So let's hear a little bit about that. I think because it was so kind of out of the ordinary, even though it was you know you know silly. A lot of it, and people remember the silliest stuff. You know, what do you? What's your favorite planet? Pluto. Why? Because it's a Mickey Mouse planet. And I was like, well, why does that joke work? You know, you know, and it just people would remember the thing about fly, be free. Where I'd take eggs and throw them up, and they'd crash. And just the, the idea that it had this weird kind of silliness, but underneath it sometimes there'd be other... We eventually, they had to have a censor who spoke, I think spoke Spanish, three or four different languages, because I was sneaking things in in different languages, and they went, she knows what that means. Really? Oh, sad. Because I was using... Sometimes Mark would speak Yiddish. For smocks too, Mindy. That must have been. And some Hasidim watching it. Thank God it's Thursday. We could watch. <laughs> So Robin just knew dick jokes and curse words in a bunch of different languages <laughs> and would try and get them past the censors. Which is amazing. Like that I think is very funny. That like I like knowing that stuff about Robin Williams, I think is hilarious. I almost think he as a guy would have made me laugh more than, you know, his stand up comedy. I've I've enjoyed but, it. I enjoy his stand up when I watch it. I have a hard time with it. And I'll tell you why. It's something he said right in that clip that you heard. Where he said, uh, you know, the things people remember, like, uh, what's your favorite planet? Pluto. Why? Because it's a Mickey Mouse planet. And then he says, well, why does that joke work? 
that's kind of what I thought about a lot of Robin's act because I would watch it and think, well, you're almost just laughing because his energy suggests this is funny. Not that, not that all his lines were bad. Like he had some lines that would make me laugh, but there was a lot of it where it's like, yeah, I get that you're freely associating. And a lot of this is just coming off the top of your head. And that's interesting, but I don't necessarily get what the, joke is you know you do a funny voice and you just throw a a reference out there in any other cadence or style i don't think those jokes would work you know what i'm saying definitely for sure um so does that take us to the first tonight show appearance it sure does yeah so i'm like and i think i just pulled this because i think it's a decent example of what i'm talking about um but Unlike uh, a lot of comedians, Robin's first appearance on The Tonight Show went directly to the couch. He was a big star um, off of uh, Mork and Mindy, obviously. And so he got to sit right on the couch with Johnny Carson. And this is a little bit about what I'm talking about. And by the way, um, I don't know what the consensus is on Robin Williams. So if you disagree with me, sound off in the comments, as they say. Feel free, because uh, I'll be curious. And I'm also curious what the age range is of people that did or did not like Robin Williams. And how, cause I think he's known as so many different things. Like you mentioned, uh, Aladdin. There's people that know him from this. There's people that know him from his serious roles. There's a lot of different things you can know Mrs. Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire is probably the biggest true comedy he was in. Right. You forget about flubber dude. Flubber, Flubber is a great one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Good Good Morning Vietnam was the first like big box office success, but would you, was that like a straight comedy? No, he was almost Not like really the right comic relief in a movie about Vietnam. That's what that's what I'm saying. Like his part was supposed to be funny, obviously, but uh, anyways, let's not get too off track here. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I don't know why that got me. <laughs> you know, people see you and they probably think you experiment with uh, foreign substances in your body. Medication, you mean? Yeah, something. <laughs> what makes you say that in any way? <laughs> no, 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 no. Not me. No, I think I'm Seriously, no. How are you? You know, people get howdy doody jaw. How are you? Okay. <laughs> no, because I believe that cocaine is God's way of saying you're making too much money. <laughs> No, I wouldn't take any medication. You couldn't. You see the girls at the Rainbow Bar and Grill have taken one too many quaaludes going, Is my lipstick off? (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's Emmett's girl. (laughs) How are you? Yeah, she's a cheap date. Oh, I was no. asking about your home, I think. Where, oh, home? Yeah, where, where is home? I, San Francisco. I wonder that's if I yeah, grew up there. Went to a Gestalt high school there. Gestalt high school. I used to have a history teacher on acid going, I'm Lincoln today. I'm Lincoln. <laughs> My problem was there's a kid in the back who goes, I'm Booth. I'm Booth. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. It's like, it was stuff like that where it's like, I get the reference he's making and he's doing kind of a funny voice there and things, but it's like, I don't always know what the joke is um however he would do stuff like and for me as a kid that grew up with like like we said aladdin and flubber and patch adams and those things like i knew him as this wacky silly essentially children's character uh so whatever age i was when i learned 
he was a huge drug addict. I was surprised. But going back and watching this, it's funny to hear him just on the couch with Carson when Johnny says, like, uh, do you do any substances? And he goes, what would make you think of that in any way? <laughs> like, that's, that's that's kind of a funny line. Right. Especially but in there. I think. He, no, go ahead. I was going to say, especially when he just comes off like he did an eight ball right before everything he's ever done ever, except for maybe except for maybe his appearance on Louie. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, it was a little silly that I uh, didn't realize that, I guess. <laughs> Um, you, you know what else I notice in that clip in particular is there's a little bit of, I wonder if he was like a Rickles fan. There's, there feels like a little bit of Rickles in his delivery, which obviously it's not insults or anything. I think it's more the way he's like, uh, this guy's saying this over here. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> the, the delivery to get to a next joke reminds me of Rickles. And I wonder if that is where it came from. I mean, they probably came up around the same time, right? Um, no, Rickles is older. Rickles is a little older. Uh, yeah, I get maybe like a, cause I think Robin, if Robin Williams was alive, I think he'd only be 71. Is that true? So, yeah. I thought yeah, he was, yeah. So Rickles is definitely older. Oh, I thought he was older than that. All right, never mind. No, cause you got to figure So this is a uh, Mark and Mindy. He was late twenties. And that was in the 70s? late seventies. Yeah. I get, uh, yeah. Well, it's a fact. We don't need to quibble over it too yeah. much. I, I just thought he was closer to 80 for some reason. Um, what? Uh, uh, what's next? Um, joke stealing. Yeah, so this is the big thing um, that plagued Robin's later years. And based on the articles I looked up, I don't know if this was the first person to kind of publicly talk about it. Uh, Bud Friedman's book, who I think we talked about in the Schimmel episode a little bit. Um, but he wrote a book where he kind of named Robin as a joke stealer, uh, a joke thief and said that, you know, comics when, when he came up would stop doing their best material in, in fear of Robin taking it basically. And I had always heard that Robin denied those claims and maybe he did for a long time. I don't know. Um, but in the joke stealing episode we did, we played a clip of, uh, I think it was John Witherspoon talking about like, Oh yeah, Robin stole everyone. No, he stole and he would pay people for it. Um, and so that was the story that kind of became gospel. I didn't realize that, uh, on Mark Maron's podcast in around 2010, Robin Williams addressed just that. What about the whole, like, you know, I mean, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't address it because it, it's something that I, I want to talk to you about. And, and it, it's something I hear all the time. And I think it's demeaning the, this whole stealing issue. I think in the old days, it was if you hang out in comedy clubs when I was doing almost 24 seven, you you hear things. And then if you're improvising, you all of a sudden you repeat it going, oh, shit. Right. That's the way your brain works. My brain was working yeah, yeah. that way. And now I went and then I went I literally had to go through a period and went, I'm not going to hang out anymore. I can't because I don't want to be getting into that thing. And I was also like the bank of comedy went, oh, shit, here, here you go. Here's money. I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Oh, shit. I'm Is sorry. that how you dealt with it? Because I, I just paid shitloads of cash. I was just like, here you go. I'm sorry. And then and then after a while, when I bought that line already, I'm sorry. And then they have to pay again. I went, oh, fuck, I'm sorry. So just so guys who like, would come up to you and say, well, say, you know, I do that. And I went, go, but so does everybody. Right. It's like, there's other stuff that's common material. Sure. There's other things that go, fuck, you're right. I'm sorry. I heard that. And then it was like, okay. And then I went, I can't hang out in here anymore. And then it took literally going, 
when I go here to the Throckmorton, I'll see friends and I can hang out like with Overton. Sure. Or you see Stephen and all these other guys and it's like, oh, cool, I'm okay. That's why it's kind of like living up here, I don't worry about it. In New York, I go, I can go on and hang up upstairs in the restaurant and not, and then go on stage. I don't want to sit down and watch comics all the time. But, you know, in the old days, yeah, there was that whole thing about just going from club to club to club. It's one of my, yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of people that was like, you would say, like, there were styles and you're like, but he's doing him. I go, yeah, it's Andrew Bernhardt's doing Taylor Negron. Yes. You know, you go like at that point, you're going, look at the. Yeah. So I thought that was a very interesting clip. I had never heard it before. I don't, maybe you guys have. Um, but I, I wasn't aware that clip was out there because I always thought it was rumor that uh, Robin would go around just handing people checks for jokes he stole, essentially. But it was interesting to hear him talk about that and feel this like, oh, shit. And you hear different things about Robin's joke stealing that make it kind of confusing exactly how to evaluate it. Like some people would say that like Carlos Mencia, Robin would wait at the, at the back of the room with a notepad that was thrown out there. Uh, I might've been by Bud Friedman actually, um, that he would wait with a notepad and that I would view much differently. Because that is deliberately, you're showing up there with the intention of writing down people's jokes. Right. And So I find that to be very different. And that's what everyone, by all indications, that's what Mencia would do. Right. And um, the fact that Robin Williams even admitted it and he was like, ah, fuck, I kind of fucked up. So he paid him. He, he was sorry. He, he would actually throw yes. money at it. Right? Well, so here's the thing is I don't, based on that, the way he told that story and the based on the way I've heard other people tell it. I don't believe Robin Williams was sitting there with a notepad. It seems more like this guy was a just fireball of energy. He was a whirlwind of coked up energy. And he was so fucked up all the time that he was just absorbing all of this information and all of these premises and ideas. And he had no idea where he heard them. Because a his mind is moving to ten miles, ten million miles an hour, and also he's all all kinds of fucked up, and this information just gets in there, and then when someone calls him out on it, he's like, "Oh shit, maybe I did get that somewhere else." Right. So not that that's right, but I do believe that um, more than with maybe some other people, and. I also think, as I said in the joke stealing episode, I think that's the case with a lot of joke thieves. Like now pretty much any comedy special, go watch a comedy special on YouTube. You'll probably be able to find someone saying, Hey, you know, John Mulaney did this joke in 2011 or what, you know what I mean? Like, or, or someone stole this joke from you or whatever. And more often than not, it's that, people are having similar thoughts. Mm -hmm. But as we said, the accusation comes up with Robin enough that you're like, there's got to be something to that. And hearing him say, you know, it's true. And I had to do something to correct it. He said, Hey, I paid people off and I don't know that that's worth it. Um, although there's a lot of comics saying, I think Marin says it in this interview, like, Hey, the idea that, you know, so one joke about Reagan is going to make or break your career is silly. Mm. You know what I mean? Because Robin Williams also said some joke you had in 1982. If that derails your career, you were never really going to make it anyways. 
Right. So these guys that kind of get bitter about one joke being stolen or whatever, it's because they didn't have a lot of material to begin with. Um, but Robin Williams also got very famous off of his comedy. So what's the number that people deserve for that work? I'd be curious to know what kind of a, what kind of an envelope he was handed people, you know? Yeah, exactly. Probably, I'm gonna, um, it depends. Maybe did, if it was a premise or like a polished joke, like what, what level of theft are we talking? You know? So like, yeah, that, that, that's what I'd love to know. And that's why I would like, um, and Marin didn't really get into detail of like, oh, well, who did you take from or who did you pay or whatever, which I would have loved to know because I am fascinated if the, the problem with intentional joke theory, like I, I think Carlos Mency is a pathological liar. For you know what sure. I mean? So I don't know that you'll ever truly get an answer out of him. That Bobby Lee interview we talked about, there was a lot of truth in that, but there was also, you know, he called himself a rapist 19 times for no reason. So that's right. It was one of the great interview moments of all time, <laughs> but <laughs> I forgot about that, but, but uh, go back and listen folks. Um, but I think like, I, I think Mencio is a, a true liar. Whereas, and I think that's the case with a lot of people who are intentionally stealing jokes is they're kind of lying to themselves in a way so they don't see what they're doing. But I would have loved uh, Marin to expand on that a little more. A, because I know Marin is uh, probably bitter about that, and I'm sure went through a period where he hate, hated fucking Robin Williams. <laughs> and so I wish he got more in-depth about that. But I'd also just be curious to know, um, you know, how you process that. Because like he said, he had to stop going to clubs as much and stop being around comics. He had to change kind of his lifestyle in order to stop doing that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely an, a very interesting aspect of Robin's career. Although I don't know that it, how much it taints his comedy because he's spitting out so many things. He's ta- going at such a fast pace and a lot of it hinges on voices or accents that he does that have nothing to do with the joke itself, really. So it's hard to say that Robin Williams career in comedy is predicated on, you know, other people's work. I, I think that would be uh, doing him a, you know, a disservice, but anyways, that's our, uh, our joke stealing chunk for the day, I guess. <laughs> what, uh, what's next? Um, our shoehorning of norm. Oh, of course. Yes. Well, I mean, like, like I said, those accusations were around forever. So uh, after Norm had sadly passed, it came up on the greatest talk show of all time, uh, an episode where Bobby Lee was on Norm McDonald Live. Uh, the winner's this brilliant, like, improv guy, and he would dress up as this character, Marty Frickert, you know, as an old lady, and he'd go, hello there, and uh, he did a voice, and Johnny Carson just stole it, even the costume, <laughs> yeah. everything, and then, so this guy couldn't do it anymore. Oh, my God. You know God. what I mean? Because it'd be like if Jimmy Fallon took one of your bits. Yeah. You can't do it. You can't do it anymore, yeah, I think that is. But Jimmy could, Fallon it, is not it, a thief at all. Yeah. Robin Williams was notorious for it, right? Well, listen... <laughs> I think yeah. it was a well-known. All right, that's fine. You know what they always say: speak ill of the dead. You know that old fucking that old saw. God damn. 
There was no reason to play that. I just enjoyed Norm's delivery of it. Don't speak ill of the dead. I think it was not that long after Robin had died. <laughs> you know what they say, speak ill of the dead. <laughs> All right, anyways, on from the joke stealing. Uh, Robin was much more, much more than a joke thief. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, you know, he, like I said, Mork and Mindy was a, a huge hit. And then he started to release comedy specials. Um, his first being in 79, I want to say, uh, he had a long relationship with HBO, put out a ton of huge HBO specials. Um, and then he started getting movies. Uh, his first was Popeye, which I don't know if that was necessarily, uh, what kind of hit that was like, you know, um, by the way, speaking of Popeye, like, this is what I'm trying to say about Robin Williams is without his energy and excitement and his delivery, he essentially would have been Uncle Joey from Full House. <laughs> like Joey Gladstone was a poor man's Robin Williams. That's what I'm trying to say, is that the performance has a lot to do with it. Does that make sense? Definitely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he was in uh, The World According to Garp, which was, again, more of a, a, a cult success. And then uh, Good Morning Vietnam was probably his first real uh, kind of commercial success and let people know that he could be in a uh, um, maybe a more dramatic role and uh, on and on. But what, what, uh, what clip are we going to next? Drugs and alcohol. Yeah, so this is what I think has a lot to do with Robin's depression. Um, and there may be some things that no matter what he did with uh, drugs and alcohol, um, he would have had, you know, mental issues later in life. But I do think drugs and alcohol played a big role in that. Cause like I said, he lived, you know, by all accounts, at least public, what we know publicly he lived a pretty good life uh, for a long time. But uh, this was something that, um, you know, he had to deal with for a long time. So you were dry for 20 years? Yes. Why did you fall off? Uh, I was in a little town in Alaska. It wasn't the end of the world, but you can see it from there. And it was like all of a sudden I thought, I could drink. It's also that same thought you have if you look off a large building and go, I can fly. Mm. And within a week it was like, gone, you know. And now, you know, I realize I can't. So that was the gift, you know. How, um, how vividly can you remember falling into the trap in the first place with, with cocaine and alcohol? Because I don't vividly remember anything from that. <laughs> it's like there is this thing for alcoholics called a blackout, which isn't really a blackout. It's more like sleepwalking with activities. And I believe it's your conscience going into a witness protection program going, you're about to have sex with a hobbit. I've got to go now. Good luck. I'm checking out. I'm leaving the body on, but we're not going to remember anything. Good luck to you. Take care. <laughs> but do you remember getting into it? You Getting know, into it, no. Was I it a gradual thing? Or? Yeah, it was very gradual. It was just, and you're off, you know, <laughs> you're off and running. And then the alcohol kicked in and decided, and then eventually you realized, I can't. I remember stopping it on my own because I was about to have a son, and I didn't want to be coked up going, hey, Dad loves you. Here's a little switch. I'm going to throw up on you. You know, you don't want to be like that. And I had to kind of go, but I did it alone. So that was why it was, you know, 20 years without any help. Of course, there were people who would say, why did you ever need cocaine? You, you're, yeah, it's a bit redundant. You're, you're, as, you're as fast without it as, <laughs> totally. as, the, as the heaviest cocaine addict. Would yeah, be. yeah, it's that weird thing. But I think I did it because it would, it would actually allow me not to talk. It was like, you know, reverse medication. You know, why they give Ritalin to hyperactive children is that idea of kind of, oh, okay, I don't have to talk to people. It just kind of shuts you down. Mm. 
It's interesting because my thought on it would be like that that's his job. The personality that we see him as like this, you know, kind of all over the place stream of consciousness maniac that you see on stage. That was his job. So I can see not truly being like that all the time and feeling like you need some kind of amplification to get you there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like on a much, much smaller scale, if I do, you know, three or four podcasts in a day, sometimes the last thing I want to do at home is uh, have a long chat, (laughs) you know? So Robin Williams is doing that in front of, uh, you know, a packed stadium or millions of people on television or whatever. And so he feel like, feels like, Hey, I, I'm kind of this quiet, subdued guy. I need to amplify that. Like, I'm not like this all the time, which is interesting because the Robin you heard in that interview there, I think I would like more because he's still got that kind of, you know, wit and he's saying funny things and still kind of manically bouncing all over the place. But it's a little more palatable and easier to understand, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, and the way he became, you know, a very big advocate of, uh, um, you know, sobering up, for lack of a better term, anti-drugs and alcohol, um, and he would want to help people through those situations. Obviously, he went 20 years from uh, the early 80s to the early 2000s, clean and sober, and like you heard him say there, he fell into a, you know, kind of a dark hole when he was alone in Alaska. And that has to be a very tough thing when you're Robin Williams. And like I said, I didn't necessarily know it growing up, but if you were around in the seventies or eighties and you knew what kind of guy he was, I imagine everywhere, everywhere he went, particularly comedy clubs, people are offering you all kinds of shit. It's like we've said about Artie Lang before where it, it was essentially impossible for Artie Lang to do his job because everywhere he went was a bar where comedy fans know him from doing coke, <laughs> you know? So it's yeah. tough. To, like they all just want to do that shit with you. It's tough to be around. Artie's stories about getting cocaine on the road are so funny. It's pretty wild. Um, but I imagine Robin dealt with some of that and it seemed like he did a good job cleaning up for the most part. And he said there, he did say in this, in this interview that we just listened to, um, that the main reason for him sobering up uh, was his son. But a lot of people over the years have attributed to it, and he did attribute it to this as well. I think this is our next clip, right, from uh, the documentary? Nope, this is um, his last Tonight Show appearance. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll get there in a second. But uh, just remember what I said about him sobering <laughs> up, because I think it's a pretty interesting story. Uh, but first, I do want to talk about something that I find... To be very odd, I found this so strange, and that's why I included it. Um, Johnny Carson was the host of The Tonight Show for 30 years. Um, And, you know, the the king of late night, he was a major staple, um, probably the most prominent name at NBC at that time. There's a couple others maybe you could argue, but... I would say Carson was certainly close to the top of the list, if not the top of the list. And I, I think if it was done now, this is how it would have gone. Maybe just times were different in the early nineties. I would say Don Rickles was the best guest in the history of the tonight show and had a relationship with Johnny and probably should have been the last guest. Um, There are a couple other names you should 
you could throw out, you know, Letterman or I don't know, Newhart or a lot of these guys that were on a million times. Um, Leno would make sense as he was taking over. But the guest that they went with is the last guest before Bette Midler sang him off was Robin Williams, which I found to be very weird. Uh, so I just wanted to play a clip of it quickly. Really minute. This is a wild night, especially with the world in such interesting... I, I was going to bring you a VCR, but the stores had none. <laughs> <laughs> a little low, are they? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, I guess, has done a little political shopping. <laughs> it's very difficult. You see people going, Yeah, man! It's for Rodney King! And the five TVs are for me. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, they caught the one guy. They always catch the one wino. Yeah, man. I'm really pissed off about Don King, man. The whole Don King thing has got me down, man. Damn. And they brought in the National Guard, uh, and they, they didn't come with bullets, which is always an, an interesting thing. They couldn't find him. They couldn't find him, so they're out in the streets going, Oh, everybody! We are the world. <laughs> So I, 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 found, I found it very strange and like, you know, he was, he was funny there. <laughs> That's fine. That was topical uh, with the Rodney King stuff, obviously. I just think it's weird. And I don't think it would have been done this way where, and part of this is probably because shows now are so, you know, niche. Everyone has like their kind of cult audience. Whereas back then this is for the masses, you know, uh, uh, tens of millions of people are watching uh essentially the last tonight show. Um, so I guess maybe that's the logic behind having Robin Williams on. And my point of pulling that clip, I guess was to a say, I think it was a little weird uh, that he was the last guest, but the reason he was the last guest spoke to how massive, massive a star he was. Exactly. Like that's, uh, there's not a lot of guys that rose to that level where they would say, okay, rather than Rickles or rather than someone that's associated with this show and not Robin had been on a bunch, not to say he wasn't, you know, uh, on the tonight show frequently, but he didn't necessarily have this storyline. And so that goes to show you what a, a gigantic star he was. Um, and he was on Letterman all the time also. And, and he was, I think a good um, talk show guest, if for nothing else, I imagine Johnny would think, well, I don't have to talk for a segment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they pretty much said, ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams, and he just takes over. Like Johnny doesn't have to do any work, really. <laughs> no kidding. He says more words than have ever been said on the show ever. Right. Yeah, right. Um, so there, there's a lot of that, I imagine. But I think the difference now is like, even these dumb talk shows that exist have their own little worlds and people that are important to their show. So I don't know if it would be done to appease the masses, but it was just interesting to see uh, Robin as, as uh, the choice there. But now we get to um, the documentary come inside my mind. I believe it was called, um, which is a, a documentary made posthumously after Robin had passed. And this is something I was not aware of. I don't, th maybe I'd heard this somewhere, but it certainly didn't stick in my memory um, about uh, something dealing with Robin's drug use and uh, part of the reason that he may have sobered up. It was really near the end of Mork and Minnie, and he came to work and he said, wow, I, I went over to the Chateau last night. I was supposed to meet with De Niro. And he said, De Niro had a couple girls in his room wouldn't let me in. <laughs> 
And so, and there, and he says, so I decided to go to Belushi's bungalow. And he said, and he was so stoned, he could hardly stand up. And then just before our dinner break, the producers came to me and they said, Pam, John Belushi, they, he, he OD'd last night. I went, what? Yeah, so that's a Pam Dauber, by the way, his co-star from Morgan Mindy. And um, I did not know that, that Robin Williams was saw John Belushi the night, like one of the last people to see John Belushi alive. That's what a person to be with. It's pretty wonderful. He was part of the reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I guess he had to, I don't know if this is the right word. I don't know the legal system, but he had to like testify at the the hearing for how Belushi died, whatever, whatever that would be. I'm sure I'm uh, butchering that. Um, but yeah, he was involved in that, in that whole case, which is pretty wild and a pretty eye opening thing. And like I said, he did mention that having a son was a bigger part of that. He didn't want to be, uh, you know, all kinds of fucked up while he's with his kid. But I imagine being with Belushi on the night he died was a pretty eye-opening experience for someone who was not living a dissimilar lifestyle, it sounded like. Especially, too, because he was like, I did exactly what he did last night. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I think physically Belushi might have been in worse shape. Um, like Robin Williams never looked like he was necessarily out of shape, but as far as just substances you're consuming, Robin Williams wasn't that far off. Right. And so that's going to be a thing where you're like, fuck this ride that I'm on. Like Belushi's pretty huge at this time. This is after animal house. And the, I mean, that's after everything Belushi did, I guess because he died. But, um, point B, he was a pretty big deal. Yeah. It's just three years before animal house. I was about to I was about to list the things he had like this is after folks this is after Saturday Night Live you might not know that he died after he did that um, but yeah I I found that to be uh, very interesting and then um, the closest thing I could find to a scandal I love a good oh, a few salacious details. Um, the closest thing I could find to a scandal was this, the, uh, uh, this is his wife, um, or his, I'm sorry, his first wife from that same documentary come inside my mind. Contrary to what the national papers said, Robin and I had ended our marriage and then Robin and Marsha started up a relationship. That story of him running off with the nanny, everybody got carried away with it. And because I didn't counter that, because I don't talk to the press, um, I, they got skewered. And I was sorry for that. Um, and I'm sorry for Marsha that she had to start her adventure with Robin in such an unpleasant way. So basically the tabloids reported Robin was banging his nanny and that's why uh, he got divorced. Um, and at least according to his first wife, that wasn't the case. Wasn't true. Uh, I do find it interesting. Um, I think the last one like this that we covered was Chevy Chase. Uh, but there's a few instances of guys that are married multiple times throughout their lives. And every time the next marriage, you know, it's like um, Robin Williams and his first wife were married from whatever, 77 to 1988. He marries his next wife in 1989. Um, and that was the case with, uh, with all three of his marriages. Well, I guess two of them that they came uh, one year after his previous. 
And it's the case with a lot of these guys. And I'm always amazed by the fact that like, really your last marriage failing didn't tell you like, I, again, I'm sure part of the timeline is that they were with this person for X amount of time mm-hmm. before they got divorced. Also. And just so everyone knows his third marriage came after the first and second one. Yes, that's, that's correct. <laughs> Craig, actually, that's a good point. Uh, and after he died, there were no more marriages, <laughs> at least according to my research. Um, but, but it's interesting to me that these guys don't learn. They're not like, Hey, the last one was a fucking disaster. Well, let's give it another shot. <laughs> Why not? Let me try love again. <laughs> but it happens a lot with these, uh, celebrities. But like I said, that's as close as I could find to like a, a juicy, juicy controversy. Um, some other notes worth mentioning in, uh, Robin's career was like I said, comic relief, uh, made, I believe $80 million in total to, uh, help homeless people. And that was a pretty big deal. If you don't know what it was, it was him, Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg putting on this comedy show on HBO and they would have, um, you know, a lot of their comedian friends participate and things like that. And it was a pretty huge deal. And Robin would do a lot of uh, charitable charitable shit like that. And, like, you know, he was in the movie uh, Patch Adams, which, you know, think of that way you will. Uh, But they say he would also do shit like that um, for people in his life and for kids and things like that. Um, Like Christopher Reeves was one of his uh, one of his boys, Superman. Uh, They went to Juilliard together and they remained friends for a long time. And Christopher Reeves said, his, the first time he was able to laugh after his accident was Robin coming in and doing like just weird Russian accents and shit like that for him. <laughs> um, and the same thing I mentioned about Pryor. Uh, Robin Williams said he would visit Pryor towards the end of his life and, and make him laugh. So uh, I think that's something he really seemed to enjoy. At least that's legend, you know, um, that he would enjoy kind of cheering people up. And part of that might be, I his relationship with his parents seemed pretty good. Um, he said his mother was a big like inspiration into him getting into comedy. Um, he said his dad was more uh, cynical, but it, it, his relationship with his parents did not seem bad, but as, uh, an only child essentially, and the only child to people with, you know, the types of demons (laughs) that are basically abandoning two other children, um, I wonder, I, I imagine a lot of that came from him having to be the, the comic relief in his own home. Um, and so that's, you know, I guess kind of just a cool tidbit about Robin Williams, but I think my favorite side note in the career of Robin Williams is, um, in this was a plot line in entourage and I knew it had come from somewhere. I just wasn't sure what movie it was. Um, when Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were shopping around Goodwill Hunting, which, as you know, uh, he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Oh, you spoiled it earlier, dude. Everyone I already know. knows. I'm sorry, everyone. I blew it. But it's a good film. You should check it out. Um, Tarantino in this story. <laughs> so uh, uh, when they were shopping around Goodwill Hunting, the way they were able to tell if. Um, that does sound like a hunting department store. What's that? You keep shopping around Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> yeah, they were taking a look around. <laughs> they, they were in the leisure section. Yeah. And uh, they they wrote a scene that they knew that any production company that had actually read the script 
would give them the note of you have to take this out. And that scene was um, Robin Williams character blowing Matt Damon, <laughs> which if you've seen the film, Goodwill hunting, they correctly assumed that anyone that read that script would say, that seems a little odd. No, <laughs> Why would the, why on earth would that happen? But the reason I love that note is just because I think it would have been hilarious if uh, I forget who did Goodwill Hunting, Gus Van Zant, I think, if he was just like, no, 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 I read it and I want to keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're keeping it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, so that I thought it was pretty interesting, but uh, I don't know. Now that we get in the sad stuff with Robin Williams. Parkinson's. Yeah, so the end of Robin's life was, uh, you know, not as gleeful as the rest of it. And there are a ton of clips. You can go back just through YouTube and find uh, a bunch of clips of him talking about uh, depression and sobriety and things like that. So I do think depression is something that uh, Robin dealt with throughout his lifetime, but I think it's certainly amplified at the end of his life when there were just things that became uh, too much to deal with. And this was the first one. Uh, but I said, are you all right, Robin? And he said, yeah, I'm fine boss. And I, I, I knew it wasn't true. And I don't think I even said, really? And, you know, I just let, you know, he didn't want to go there. And so I gave him a hug and he didn't really like to talk about his issues, you know. We met at a movie theater. I was a little concerned because I felt he was very quiet. When we left each other, he started to cry. And I said, what's the matter? He goes, I'm just so happy seeing you. And then he told me that he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And when he told me, I never heard, I never heard Robin be afraid, except for that moment. A couple of months later, um, we were going on vacation, Janice and I, to Europe. And uh, I called him to say I was gonna be away and but I'm reachable, my, I said, my phone, I have my computer, so whatever. And he says, okay. And, uh, you know, I love you. And I said, I love you too, pal. And um, that was the last time I spoke. Yeah, and that obviously crazy sad. And Billy Crystal and Robin Williams were uh, very closely tied together. I mean, mostly because of the comic relief thing that they did together. But obviously, and they would do stuff at, uh, you know, the award shows and all that. But also they were very close friends uh, for a long time. And so that just kind of breaks your heart to hear a little bit. Um, and it was like, it's strange because Robin thought he had one thing, which he did. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's, obviously. Um, but then they would also say like he started uh, forgetting his lines and becoming irritable on set and difficult to deal with. And he had all these kind of, uh, uh, you know, horrible symptoms that he attributed to Parkinson's. Um, and it came out later that it may have been more than that. It may have been in part because of Parkinson's as well, but he was dealing with a, a lot more than that. Um, unbeknownst to him. So it was a, a brutal end 
for for Robin, obviously, and the health issues he was dealing with. And I imagine also trying to um, remain sober during, you know, while going through something like that has got to be pretty difficult. Was that all we had for clips or was there one more? Uh, We got Louie and depression. Um, Okay. I'm trying to think how to do this. Um, Let's play the uh, Louie clip first, just because this is probably, uh, it's one of my favorite scenes, at least certainly one of my favorite, like kind of serious scenes um, from Louie, because it's an episode dealing with the topic we're getting into here, like death. And oh, I guess well, hold on. I'm sorry. I should set it up. Um, they're they meet at a diner. Um, a club owner that they both knew had died. It's Louis and Robin Williams. Were you close? Um, well, I uh, I worked to, at the club. Oh, the laugh circuit. Yeah, and um, what did you were you, you were close to him? Were you? I knew him. But did you? Were you? Was he a friend of yours or was? He was my ex-wife's brother-in-law. So, he was important to you. I, I'm pretty sure that Barney was the biggest piece of shit I ever knew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was amazing. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I, I mean, he was the worst guy ever, man. Oh, yeah, I hated him. Right? Yeah. You hated him. Oh. Hated him. Oh. Prick. Oh, oh, he was God. a prick and an asshole. He hated him. Ooh. All the comics hated him. Serious? Yeah. He underpaid. He bounced checks. He uh, lied, just mean. You know, I, I knew that nobody would be there today. Oh, God, yeah. And, I, like, when he... This is weird, because when he died, I felt nothing. You know? I didn't care. But I knew... When I pictured him going in the ground, and nobody's there, he's alone, mm-hmm. it gave me nightmares. Me too. So that I like that's a it's part of a very funny episode. Obviously, we can't play the whole thing, but it's basically um, they talk about this strip club that the guy who died loves, and they go to it just to check it out because they said he would talk about it all the time. And when they go there, um, they ask if they want to dance, and they say no. They're like, "Why would you go to a strip club and not get a lap dance?" They said, well, we're honoring our friend who died. And they said, uh, who's your friend? And they said, Barney. And the strippers all get very sad. That, and like they start crying. And then they, <laughs> yeah. Big J. Okerson gives this announcement over the loudspeaker and they're playing sad music in his honor. It's very funny. <laughs> but the reason I uh, chose that clip was a couple of reasons. A, um, it's probably the work that I've liked Robin Williams the most in. Uh, I mean, other than like, I'm a big Goodwill hunting fan and everything, but like that was Robin Williams essentially playing himself kind of being the guy that he really was where he can be funny, but he's also a little dark and he calls the guy a prick and an asshole. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think that's the version of Robin Williams. I might've liked more if he was able to tap into that um, as a performer. But the other reason I pulled it is because at, at the end of his life, and maybe this part of this is hindsight with the ability to go back and pull clips and things like that. But he would talk a lot about depression and just kind of the, the you know, the darkness of life. Um, and I think that's what our last clip gets into. Times like that, you, you understand that um, 
That Marceau piece where, that he does that's so frightening. Where this is way back, by the, the way, Dick Comic mask. Mm. Yeah, I used to do a thing about that, too, about called Celebrity, about this man signing on a guy, so the big smile goes home and I take something like... <laughs> and it's a monster. But yeah, it's like a whole he, bizarre thing, because sometimes maintaining that yeah. is a very scary thing. And, and not being able to get out of it. That's um, yeah, true. You said about sometimes being on, that people, mm -hmm. people want you to be a certain way, and sometimes you can't help but be depressed, or, you know, just the yeah. nature of being... How, how do you work through that? Um, all performances, performers do experience kind of depression. And uh, I once saw a show of Steve Martin's that I thought was quite good. And he said, I wasn't really feeling funny that night, but I worked my way through it. We have autopilot. I mean, there's a, something yeah. in your way. There'll be certain things that you know you can do that will work. But for me, I love to take the chances and improvise. That's when I'm really, that's the greatest high in the world when you're trying new stuff yeah. or getting suggestions and playing and doing new things. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite. That's the unknown, the special land. And so, uh, you know, I think his thoughts on depression in general are uh, pretty interesting, but I think it's something that a lot of comics deal with where like people like you for being one way, one particular way, like there aren't really jobs where you necessarily deal with that, where you have to be one thing to all people because that's what they know you for. So that's a tough thing that Robin Williams had to deal with, especially when it's so amplified, you know, such amplified happiness and, and joy and you know, this big personality when that's not what you want to be with all the time. And so that's something he struggled with a lot as the years went on. Um, and then of course, after he, he died, um, we found out he was dealing with uh, Louis body dementia, which is just a, a brutal fucking miserable disease um, that, that, tortures your mind and is probably why he was dealing with things like forgetting his lines and things like that. Um, they said it was undiagnosed. So I don't know if Rob, I guess that would mean Robin never knew he had it. Right. Yes. And that would also, you know, explain the mega depression he was feeling. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, life. that's the interesting thing is that, um, especially if you like, if you walk into a room and you're like, why the fuck am I in here? Well, yeah, yeah, right. And that's got to really just fuck with you. Right. Uh, dementia in general, Alzheimer's, all of that is just a oh, horrendous disease. It's the worst. And it's something, you know, if you know a good charity, uh, let us know, because that's that's one that should be should be given to um, more than a lot of others, I would say. But because it's just a fucking nightmare. Um, but uh, the, the reason I find Robin Williams death interesting is a couple of things. Um and one of them being, I think it really was, uh, you know, Craig's Craig's boss, Jerry Callahan, would say that Bob Saget's death changed everything. I would say that Robin Williams' death actually did change a lot about how we view suicide. I really think that. Um, because if you go back and watch and listen to some of the coverage of Robin Williams' death, um, like I was listening to one podcast where they were saying uh, a lot of the reaction is fake. Um, oh, people pretending they're sympathetic towards uh, mental health and stuff like that. And, you know, people used to call su and I'm sure people still do call suicide, like selfish and all that kind of stuff. I used to be like uh, that. Right. I think a lot, I think a lot of people were um, because you just don't really, if you don't have it, you don't understand it necessarily. Right. Um, and so I can understand that. But I think Robin Williams death, when you look at a guy who publicly is this, you know, this clown, 
this uh, this you know ray of sunshine that fucking burst into the room. Like that guy fucking hung himself. Right. Like that's an that's an eye opening event. And I think they said that year, uh, 2014, Robin Williams' death was like the third or fourth most discussed topic on social media. It was humongous like, forever. It really was. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at, it was at that time that I realized how much a pe- how much people appreciate Robin Williams. It didn't feel like some actor died. And again, a part of that is because it was an unexpected suicide. But like the outpouring of, of emotion that came out when Robin Williams died, I didn't think would be attached to that. Well, think, um, think, of, think of the age groups he's covered. I mean, all of them. Literally every single one. Yeah, essentially, if you're alive now, or if you're able to, you know, understand uh, a podcast, like if you're able to go and get onto a podcast by yourself and listen to it, you know, you had some connection to Robin Williams. Um, so, you, you know, you don't quite grasp how huge he was until you think of it in that way. And so that was, uh, you know, one thing I took from his death was that it did uh, open people's eyes to suicide, I think. And, you know, a lot, a lot has over the years. There's a lot more people that talk about uh, depression and anxiety and all the things that go with that now uh, more than there was 20 years ago. Um, but the other thing I, I th- that I got to say I kind of respect is going out on your own terms, you know? Like, not that that's the way you'd want to go um, and not that that's the way you should do it. But Robin saying, like, I don't want to live like this. I have this horrible disease. I don't know what the fuck is happening to my mind. Let's just call it quits. I kind of respect that in a way. Right. You know, it's a, it's a, I'm sure that's a weird thing to say, and I'm, maybe I'll get shit for it. But, like, I do, I, I kind of have a lot of respect for that rather than rotting away because people want you around. People don't want to be sad, so they would rather you rot you know, in your own flesh and blood rather than have to go to your funeral, you right. know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty much it. I hate to end on such a depressing note, but <laughs> that's, that's how Robin Williams' was, life ended. I was literally going to say that's how it ended. That's how, that's how Robin wanted it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's interesting. He had a, he had an amazing career and, you know, I'm trying to think of people. I, I don't even know. I was going to say like Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler had careers close to what Robin Williams did, but I don't even know if that's true. Um, probably Jim Carrey more in the sense of the way he at least used to be. He used to be very similar with just being humongous. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, Jim Carrey certainly a Robin Williams influence, I would think. But I just mean in terms of... You know, think of the comedy. Just let's just talk comedians. Who has a bigger career than Robin Williams? Um, I mean, you could say Carlin and Pryor because they're the two that everyone references. But I don't think they were bigger. No. If George Carlin and Robin Williams were standing on the street, people would knock over poor poor George to get to Robin. Right. Um, Seinfeld. Um, Seinfeld probably. Seinfeld. Steve Martin. Uh, I mean, maybe Chris Rock, but I think that's a stretch. I think Steve Martin might even be a stretch. 
Uh, yeah, you forget how big Steve Martin was, though. Yeah, but Robin Williams didn't lose it ever. He was huge I know. forever. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, oh, that's another movie, by the way, uh, that you should check out. Um, uh, Father of the Year, I think it's called. Directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> um, it was a script that he asked Robin to be in just as like a quick cameo to try and get some, you know, publicity for it. And Robin read the script and it was like, I want to be the guy. I want to be like the main, like the, the father. Yeah. And Bobcat was like, Oh shit. It's this weird, dark comedy that, uh, check out if you've never seen it. He does. Uh, he's done like dark shit. He did that. Uh, that one movie where he's like that psychotic dude, uh, uh one hour photo, uh, one hour photo. Yep. That was a dark role. He's got, he had some fucking range like that. Is oh crazy. yeah. And I, I mean, I think those were better when he was serious when he grew his beard, as everyone said, mm-hmm. uh, that was generally better Robin Williams. Fucking, Although, you know what? Birdcage is a great movie. Jumanji was a great movie. Well, I don't know about all that. but I loved that movie. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, I'm sure it doesn't hold up. But yeah. What I, I, I mean, we said Mrs. Doubtfire is the signature comedy. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about plot lines that don't hold up, by the way. That DVD would be burned in schools. <laughs> You'll never see it played on TNT again. <laughs> Certainly not. But I think the, bir- the Birdcage might be my favorite comedy of his. Yeah. But again, we're talking, this guy had such a fucking range. Was he, now I'm wondering, was he the biggest comedian ever? He could definitely be in that conversation, no doubt. Which is crazy because I don't think of him like that, but he might be. Well, if you watch his specials too, they're all in arenas. Yeah. I mean, he's a massive... There's people that got as big as Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. You know, Chappelle, Kevin Hart got as big as Robin Williams, but for a brief time. Right. Amy Schumer got as big as... as popular as... for like a minute and a half. I was going to say uh, uh, stand-up wise, but not I'm, yeah, he, like, he, like, there's a lot like of people total, that got that big, but it was yeah. it, it did not have. He lasted. Kevin Hart was that a, famous. Kevin Hart's a better comparison because he got similar career stuff. Yeah. You know, like yeah. serious roles, comedy, stand up, all uh, comedy roles. I mean, and stand up. Robin Williams was essentially that recognizable from the minute he made his television debut with that fuck on Happy Days to when he died. Which is insane. I'm exaggerating a little, but more or less. I mean, I'm not, not, you're not really. Not really, yeah. Pretty wild. So, uh, shout out to Robin Williams, one of the greats. Um, can't necessarily my, say my favorite. It's funny when I we honor people like this. <laughs> I feel like I'm being a phony if I just say he's one of the greats. So I'm always like, I mean, I didn't like him. but well, I, think, I think Carlin's one of the greats, but he wasn't my cup of tea. Sure. So, um, you know, cheers, pour one out for Robin Williams, uh, an absolute legend. And, um, we will talk to you guys next time on why are you laughing?